Today is April 1st, 2013. This is Amy Begley interviewing Cheryl Fiewerge, formerly Bridges and Flanagan, for the RRCA Women Pioneers of Running Oral History Project. Cheryl is best known for having the world record in 249.40 and being on five world cross-country teams. Hello, Cheryl. Hello, Amy. <laughs> so you were one of the women that started running well before Title IX and there were no programs in school. But tell me how you started running and, and what age you started running. Um, I was 16. Um, the Sunday supplement that comes with the newspaper back then had an article by Bill Bowerman about how he and his wife had visited Australia and people were um, going hiking and, and doing the trails and this this walk jog sort of activity. He came back and started talking to people and I read this article uh about how healthy it was and that sort of intrigued me. Um I was starting to gain weight in high school and really wanted a way to sort of get control of it and because there was really no sports available you know, the the idea of going for a jog and not needing anybody or really any equipment other than a pair of shoes, that sounded like it would fit into, you know, what I was had available um, as far as time was concerned. And, and really, you know, you, you didn't need permission to go and do it. So as far as I knew... <laughs> But that that actually changed as well. But that's what got me started. You're not the first person to say that Bill Bowerman got them running. Some people read his jogging book and used that as a as a guide to begin, and other people just read about him. So yeah. it's kind of amazing the number of people that he started out on careers in running. Yeah, and I think, you know, like in my case, and I think it's, sort of universal. It's such an empowering activity for a female um, that for a female, I can see why it would catch on so easily. And when you started running, you did it by yourself because there weren't any girls programs. And I read somewhere that the school didn't want you running around the boys or really anywhere near the school. Um, how did that make you feel when they pretty much kicked you off the ground? Yeah, it. you know, um, there were a lot of rules back then. <laughs> there were a lot of rules that really didn't have a basis other than it was change. And people are oftentimes afraid of change. They don't know what uh, what's motivating you, what your agenda is, and... In my case, it was just real simple. Um, my social studies teacher was actually the track coach and cross-country coach, and he said, well, why don't you just come on out and run with us? Because I had approached him and, and asked him about it, and he didn't have any difficulty having me around. But one of the school board members Evidently saw me out there, and um, they had a meeting about it. Uh, 
so, you know, later on I found out that they didn't want me anywhere near the boys. I could be on the grounds, but I had to be on the opposite side of the grounds. Um, and, you know, it was more than anything, it, it, I was trying to do something that nobody had done before, and so they were suspicious of my motives. Um, I thought it was kind of silly, but, you know, on the other hand, I wasn't one to really push back. And so I just accepted that that's the way it was going to have to be and and would abide by it. And there was, since there were no programs uh, for women, were there any races or cross-country meets or, or track events that you could do during this time? Well, it took until the next summer uh, when I, you know, found out about uh, back then it was AAU, um, some clubs. And so we would drive down into Indianapolis um, from where we lived, and I would train with some other kids, but pretty much they were all sprinters, and I was not a sprinter. And so um, some of the people that were training there um kind of got together in a group and there were very few females, maybe one or or two other females and um, we started meeting with a coach on the north side where we lived and started training for, you know, for track in the summer and the AAU meets hardly ever had anybody else in the half mile, which was the longest we were allowed to run at the time. But for cross country, you know, we were allowed to go two and a half miles, and that was more to my liking. And so that um, that first, that fall, I started racing, you know, in cross country and uh, found out I wasn't bad at it. So sort of gravitated toward all of the, the longer distance events. And when they started introducing the mile and then... Years later, it was the 5,000 and the 10,000. You know, I just kept jumping right on up every time they would, you know, introduce a longer event. And it had to have been frustrating for you that they weren't allowing you to run as far as you thought would be your best event. Well, you know... Um, I wasn't really good at it yet, <laughs> so I needed time. I mean, there were no feeder systems. You know, now the kids have uh, a lot of clubs available to them. And so what you have to remember was is that all we had was, you know, kickball in somebody's backyard or, I mean, in in, in order to even play, it was difficult to have anything on a regular basis because you always had to find all these other kids. And since there was no organ, there wasn't anything that was organized in the way of running, you know, we were coming in pretty weak. And that's why I think the sprints were popular because if you had the natural ability to sprint, then they could actually train you and make you stronger. But for 
someone who was better at something longer, we really didn't have the strength either because, you know, it was fairly new to us. And it was just a matter of doing it more and more and more and more. And, the, and actually the training, uh, we needed a lot of training. And then the few times that there would be races, it was, you know, they were trying to recruit people to run the race with you. Sometimes I'd be the only one. And um, that that was really kind of discouraging because, um, you know, then you were kind of doing it for the rest of the kids that were spectating. But it was sort of frustrating because, um, you know, you wanted to have somebody to race against to determine if you were getting any better. So there was a lot of practice going on, not a lot of racing. Did you ever feel jealous or upset that the the boys and the men were able to compete in the longer distances, or did you just think that's normal, that's how it is? Well, I think, you know, the generation at that time was pretty accepting of this is the way it is. Um, I think as time went on and I got better, and I was sort of pushing the envelope there. Uh, once I got to college, that's when I really had people to train with. And not that I could run as fast as the boys, but we manipulated the workouts so that I wasn't totally on my own. Um, I would do part of the workout if the guys were running. Like when I was in college, I ran steeples steeplechase hurdles in order to get in shape. So if the guys were doing that, I would run half as long as they did um, so that I could try to, you know, at least be closer to them longer in the workouts and that kind of thing. And then I started getting strong enough where I could actually start running with the boys. And my freshman year in college, there were hardly any women's cross-country meets unless we drove to St. Louis or we drove to um, Detroit or Chicago. So my coach talked with a lot of the neighboring uh, communities where a lot of the guys that he had gone to school with were now coaching and asked if I could run in the high school boys cross-country meets. And as long as the other participating teams didn't mind. That's what I got to do. But the stipulation was I had to wait five seconds after the guys, after the gun was shot and the guys took off before I could go because they didn't want me, I was told, they didn't want me to get in the way. Um, so they were fairly ignorant as to what they thought I could do and I, I I have a hard time imagining what they thought I was going to do to get in the way, but um, I think the word kind of got out, and so I was accepted in these races. But I but I still had to always wait the five seconds. Um, the only thing I could do is run the best I could, and and uh, I never got worse than third in any of those races, even with the handicap. 
even with a handicap, yeah. Wow. Yeah. It's amazing that they made, I guess they have to give everybody permission um, to do that. It's, it's kind of sad to think about now, I'm sure. Um, well, at least they didn't go out and make, make a, a pet rule, a state, you know, where the coaches all voted on it. I mean, fortunately, we, you know, we just approached the coaches that we knew that were in the area and, you know, word had gotten out enough that, you know, I was running and that, um, and my coach knew enough of the other coaches to sort of soften the blow or, you know, ask the permission and, uh, you know, if a coach, if, team showed up that didn't know anything about me, this was, you know, that five-second rule was kind of put in place to placate them that, you know, I was going to be a problem. And, you know, I started on the far end. Uh, they made me stand off to the side. I mean, you know, they did everything to exclude me <laughs> as much wow. as they could. But um, but that was all right. I mean, I was I was very shy and didn't want to rock the boat and just wanted that opportunity. And so if that meant, you know, keeping my mouth shut and being off on the side, that was fine with me. I just wanted an opportunity to get in there and prove myself and have somebody to race. And this, in college, um, I was reading that um, Dr. Eleanor St. John who was a yeah. uh, chairperson of the Department of the PE for the women at Indiana State University. She was kind of a pioneer in sports, and she offered you a, a you know, quoted, talented student scholarship, which most people think is probably the first, one of the first athletic scholarships given, which was in 1966. Uh, Correct. Yeah. And this, is, and this is when you were allowed to run, you know, on the boys' teams and stuff. Um, how did the women team evolve at Indiana State after that? Well, um, Greta Treber, who actually defected when she was um, a young athlete, became the track coach. She was really adamant. She was the gymnastics coach at Indiana State, and she was a, um, a world judge as well and very well thought of, but she, um, even though my freshman year I trained with the, the fellows, it it was by my third year, and I went through school in three years and two summers, so it was by the fall of 68 that they had gathered girls that were physical education majors for the most part that had an interest in track and field. And um, we had a a small team. Now, there wasn't a lot of competition because there weren't other college teams that had, um, you know, other colleges didn't really have the teams. But in the spring of 69 was the first intercollegiate women's national competition. Uh, Then it was Southwest Texas State, and we sent, off of our team, we sent four girls, and we all tripled, and we tied for second place as a team. There were about, 
uh, I don't remember how many teams were there, but most of them were from Texas. Most of them had at least 24 girls on their team. But this is when everything, the feeder system was the club. Um, but there again, you know, they were a lot of the girls that showed up. I had seen through the AAU system, like Terry Crawford, um, you know, was Terry Hall back then, and she was going to the University of Tennessee, and we didn't run the same events, but we knew of each other because of running AAU meets. But that team that that we put together um, in the fall of 68, trying to put, you know, getting some girls together that were interested in the sport was the first time we really had the team for the university. You know, the rest of the time I just, um, I did my own thing pretty much. Okay. And um, you were, you were, you know, training with the boys for a while and then the coach. Um, who do you, I guess who really coached you in college then? Larry Bridges. Larry Bridges, okay. Um, and then um, you graduated in three years, so you're definitely a, uh, a committed student. Um, and after you graduated, or before you even graduated, you started competing um on the national cross-country scene, and you, that's when you started making your five world cross-country teams. Um, tell right. Me about, um, tell me about the cross-country nationals, and I know you guys are only allowed to run, you know, a shorter distance, so you're getting around one and a half or two miles, and um, tell me about the qualifications for you guys for um, nationals and world teams. Well, I mean, it started out... Um, with AU Nationals being the weekend after Thanksgiving. So for 13 years, I was never home for Thanksgiving <laughs> because we were always on the road driving to wherever the Nationals were um, to compete. And, you know, it was the that was also, even though that was held, you know, in November, uh, that was also our qualifying meet for a, a few years in order to go to the world championships, which were in February or March. And then somewhere along the line, we had a qualifying meet in February to make sure everybody was actually still in shape. Even though you made the team in November, they wanted to make sure they were they were sending a, a, a team that hadn't gotten out of shape or injured or anything like that, but um, we had to pay our own way. So as after I graduated from college and started making the teams, I, I was a teacher, and so it was sort of a double whammy. I got docked pay for being gone for a week to go compete for the U.S., and then, and oh, by the way, Here's how much it's going to cost you, <laughs> you know, for your airfare and your hotel and your food. <laughs> so um, you really had to want to do this. <laughs> um, 
it, it, and, and usually what we would do is we would show up in New York City in order to receive, because that's where the AAU head office was, and um, to receive our uniforms. And, uh, and then we all flew out of New York together. Uh, and typically that was the end of the, the batch of uniforms because the new ones were going to come out in the spring, you know, for the team that was going to go to Europe after outdoor nationals. So we always got the, the bottom of the barrel when it came to size ranges. And one year, I swear, I got something that would have fit any shop putter we could have supplied. It was so good. It was the only thing left. So that was one of the first uniforms I traded. <laughs> That's yeah, yeah. But the thing is, the, the guys, the guys that we traded with, you know, were were little scrawny guys, but they didn't care. <laughs> I traded with Muhammad Gamudi, who back in, um, you know, Muhammad Gamudi were running was running back there. Michelle Jazi, um, just some incredible, incredible. Uh, cross-country runners and that were also very, very good track runners. And uh, uh, it was just, it was an opportunity to, you know, to have an excuse to talk to them, <laughs> to be able to trade trade uniforms. So we would, we would kind of gather a bunch of stuff together to trade T-shirts and things like that. And everybody wanted the USA stuff and, um it was sad because back then, you know, a lot of these athletes really didn't have nice uniforms. And so you really had to watch what you wanted to trade for because some of these guys had been wearing that same uniform for two weeks. <laughs> so it was, you know, you really had <laughs> you had to... Uh, you know, some of them didn't want to part with it either, and I didn't blame them because they just didn't have nice stuff. But, you know, that's, that's always an interesting part of, of international competition that I don't think a lot of people know of is the trading of, of uniforms and different things like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and with the Olympics, they they do pins and things now. But back then, well, I guess USA USAT or AAU would give us some pins to trade. But a lot of times, nobody, a lot of of the other countries just didn't have things to trade, you know. So, um, yeah, we we gave a lot away, but that was all right too. And you were lucky enough to be on five World Cross Country teams, uh, placing fourth in 1969. And that year, the team ran really well. Tell me about that that best year in 1969, and uh, what the trip was like, and what your training was like too. Um, well, um, yeah, that was um, that was also my last year in college. Uh, and I was really, I was taking overload in in my class, uh, my class load in college, and uh, you know how the saying kind of goes, you know, if you want something done, you give it to the busiest person, 
and that's sort of the way I was that year. I was just tackling everything and trying to get through school, and we were driving um, crazy schedule just trying to get to meets and that kind of thing. And um, I guess in all that frenzy, you know, I just got on a, a real driven schedule and came into that meet. I was thrilled because the course was in Glasgow, Scotland, and it was a really, really tough, it was a golf course, but they had woods with the roots above ground, and they spray-painted them so we wouldn't fall, and it was just really an awesomely difficult course, and I loved it. Um, I never did well on on the flatter, faster courses, but if it was hilly, I could usually do pretty well. And, you know, up to that point, um, most of the most of the qualifying courses were golf courses, which was difficult for me. I always felt like if I could just make the team, I could always do better when we got when we got to an international course because they were always much more difficult than the courses that we qualified on. So that year, it was it was the most difficult course that that I ever ran on in um, world competition, and and ended up one second out of third place, just didn't quite. Al Robinson um, from New Zealand beat me, and I just couldn't quite get her. So we, but, um, you know, we as a team, uh, we had done fairly well. And, uh, you know, I really was sad that we couldn't sweep that one. Um, That was Doris Brown and... uh, Maureen Dixon, who had been a swimmer and just, you know, it was like her first year running and she had this great cardio, you know, system going for her and she got her legs under her and boy, you know, they were just right up there and um, I was closing fast, but just not fast enough to, to get a sweep on that, on the places that year. But that was a great, great course. I mean, it snowed earlier in the week, and it was crisp, and it was a tough course, and, you know, that was especially made for me. <laughs> I love when that, when that happens. I do, too. Uh, my um, my first year out of college, I was teaching in Michigan, and we used to go to Canada a lot for cross. And they had some really awesome, muddy, hilly, orienteering kind of courses where you went through creeks, and you went through creeks almost up to your waist. And I just loved that. Um, and that's what, you know, looking back on that, I always felt that, I was ahead of my time in in um I would have been a good steeplechaser. That that is interesting. Actually I hope I get to add that to this project is honestly steeplechase was really the last equalizer that got added for women. Yeah. Well and and I used to do it I used to do it as you know, my coach made me hurdle 
the steeplechase hurdles. So, you know, you didn't want to be cracking a knee on one of those uh, four-by-fours. But um, I always felt that was such a really good workout was running those hurdles. Um, and, you know, once later on when I incorporated them into workouts, I just knew that the steeplechase would have been a really good event for me. Um you know, because for me, being on the track was, you know, it was hard. It was hard to stay motivated to keep pushing, and that's why I was better at cross. I needed the hills. I needed the challenges to break up the monotony of just running a certain pace. That varied pace with the hills thrown in basically was you know, my bread and butter, and that's why I kept thinking, oh, people would have been, been great because you're, you're stopping and you're starting and you're, you know, you're trying to keep, you know, with those barriers in the way, you're really having to stay engaged so that you don't mentally go go to sleep and slow up. Yeah. Um, that definitely makes a lot of sense um, about training and and the steeple. I, I I tell you what, I couldn't jump those things. I, <laughs> I it would not be good for me. But the women yeah. that do it, I'm really impressed, uh, both on yeah. their strength and and the mental. Um, yeah, they have to do it too. It's it's amazing. Yeah, yeah. And you got through college in three years, and you're you're doing world cross country, and in this time, you decide to send a letter. Uh, to Bill Dellinger, telling him that you, you know, would like to give this a try and, and have a real coach. And um, tell me about the, the decision to do that because I know you're teaching and, and you know competing already on the world stage, and you're only 23 at this time when you send in the letter. So tell me kind of your thought process of of you know deciding you wanted to do this. Well, you know, at that time there weren't a lot of females running. Well, hardly any beyond college. Um, and most of the emphasis was still at the age group level. And I had a hard time finding people to race. Um, you know, Francie LaRue was five years younger than me. Mary Decker was ten years younger than me. So I just felt old at 23, and I was bigger than them. So many of them hadn't even gone through puberty yet. So I just look, I just look big and old. <laughs> and um, you know, when you lined up, um, you just, I just felt like they were, their bodies were just so light looking and you know so willowy and like they could really fly. And and I just thought, oh man, I just, you know. And society was sort of, you should be moving on. You should, you know, that's for the kids. Um, you're an adult now. You should really do adult type things, whatever that was. I, I never really found out what that was because I just never connected with um, that that adult world. I just was still in that that running play world, that's where I felt most comfortable and I really didn't want to leave it. But um, I thought, okay, if I have to do that, 
I want to go out on top. I want to make sure that my last efforts are uh, ones that I can be proud of, and if I have to step away from this, I want to step away uh, while I'm at the top, not not while I'm sliding down the, the slippery slope. So, you know, uh, there was just a lot of publicity about Prefontaine, and I don't know. I got I got in my head that I had always had the same coach, and um, I don't know. I just needed to be motivated differently. So I, <laughs> out of the blue, I I wrote um, Bill, and he wrote back that, well, I've never really coached a girl before. It can't be a whole lot different from coaching a guy. So um, why don't you tell me what your best times are at all of these distances, and I'll try to put something together, and, you know, I'll mail you down some workouts, and, you know, you mail me back how it's going, and we'll just go along that way. So uh, he sent me uh, workouts in the in the middle of the summer, and um, basically said, and this was in 1971, and said um, um, he he upped my mileage like nobody's business, and it was just like, oh, you got to be kidding. Uh, so I was doing. He got me up to 100 mile weeks, but I was doing them by myself. And every once in a while, I would run into a group of people who trained together that were sort of, you know, not at a real high level of competition, but, you know, they were just people that ran together, and I'd just ask if I could run with them just so I'd have somebody to run with. And a lot of times, they were going a lot slower than I really wanted to go, but at this point, I was putting miles on my leg and legs, and I didn't, I didn't really care. So that's kind of how it, it, uh, it started. Was you know trying to get some mileage on my legs, and then, you know, once school started, I just didn't have time to be able to do all that, that kind of mileage anymore, and I had to cut it back to my usual 60, 65 miles a week, which is about all I could get in and and still um, teach all day. And um, so he he had me in pretty good shape and had me doing these workouts that I had never imagined before. and looking back on it, he was really training my mind as much as he was my body. He was convincing me that I was actually able to run um, at a higher level with more volume than I ever thought I could. And so the the workouts went from this really high, high intensity and overload situation to where he'd taper me back off and um, he'd have me going out jogging, doing it like a three-mile warm-up. And my my reaction was, why are we even getting dressed for this? <laughs> um, but, you know, I learned when he gave you an easy day, you took it. Because you didn't get them that often, <laughs> no. but um, 
yeah, it was a really, really difficult and different kind of training that I than I had ever experienced. And um, after the week after cross country nationals, I, you know, the guys, you know, which was always this weekend after Thanksgiving, <laughs> and the very next weekend um, was this marathon, and all the guys that I I trained with, they were going down. So I was like, okay, well, let's let's go. And uh, the first year was in 1970. The, the guys I trained with went down, and I went with them, and I tried a marathon. And, you know, I walked and jogged the last six miles. And and this next year, with all of this Bill Dellinger training behind me, it was like, I'm not walking, and I'm going to choose a pace that doesn't hurt. And so I found 620s, and I thought, okay, here's where I'm going to stick, right here. This feels really good. And, uh, you know, if I feel good by with six to go, then then I've done it right. But I got two side aches, and it's like, man, you know, I'm trying to do this right. You know, what is this? <laughs> I thought, okay, just, just, just ignore it. It'll go away, you know. And sure enough, I ran through them. They went away. Um, but the last, the last six miles was, was tough. Um, and uh, the last couple miles were horrendous. But, you know, I had, I had a guy racing me with, with a couple miles to go. And it's like, I don't need this. <laughs> you know, come on, give me a break. And, uh, Later on, I got this hate mail, and I figured out it had to have been this guy because he kept trying to, you know, force me off the road. I'd go to pass him, and he'd he'd just, you know, kind of keep inching me over, and then I'd slow up, and I'd get behind him and go on the other side, and he'd do the same thing on the other side. And the people around us finally realized, this this guy's being a real jerk, you know, and so they um, protected me they kind of screamed at him so he couldn't get at me anymore. And then I had to pick it up, <laughs> which I really didn't want to do. I just wanted to kind of cruise by. But, um, you know, that was probably, you know, the two side aches and the guy trying to race me. And it's like, okay, I just want to get this thing over with at that point. But, um, yeah, it was People, the first year I ran, said, oh, you're on world record pace. Like, yeah, yeah, well, I have to finish it. <laughs> so the second year it was like, okay, yeah, we know we're on world record pace. All right, but I still have to finish it. I know that. So, you know, let's not even go there. Um, but then when I finished, you know, um, everybody said, yeah, this is going to stand because it's a certified course. And um, even though that race hadn't, you know, received the good graces of the AAU, it had to be recognized because it was a certified course. It was um, the Western Hemisphere Championship race. Um, Whether, you know, I had been anointed with the, uh, the good graces of the AAU or not didn't matter. The, um, the um, IAAF recognized it, so it took it took quite a few years for the U.S. to ever recognize it. Though, um, it, in fact, um, 
once I started being interviewed later on about Shalane, that's when, you know, and I've mentioned this, you know, oh, yeah, and I know the world are going to go. Some of the some of the people writing their articles would come back and say, you know, I, um, uh, I don't know whether you know this, but you're not in the U.S. progression record book. And I said, well, um, I don't know what to say about that. And it was in 2001 that I ran into Walt Murphy, who is a statistician and the CBS and NBC, they all use him uh, as the statistician when they're doing any kind of coverage at any of the um, track and field meets, you know, where they want to know the history. And I met Walt at that NCAA championship outdoors out in Oregon, and someone introduced me to him, and uh, I said, you know, what do you think of this? And he goes, oh, no. He says, you're in the IAAF progression book. And I said, then how come I'm not in the USA, you know, national championship progression, and I'm not mentioned as a world record holder? And he said, I don't know, but but you are in the IAAF. So, um, you know, and Jackie Hansen broke my record, and then Mickey Gorman broke, broke hers, and then Jackie got it back. But the fact is, we all ran it on the same course. Ah. So it's sort of like it, it had to be recognized, but it um, there's kind of a convoluted story behind all of this. Um, do you want to hear it? <laughs> yeah, I'd love to hear it. Um Runner's World had publicized, you know, the progression and left me off. And I wrote them. And I said, you left me off. And they said, no. Um, you were you were left off because Adrian Beams from Australia actually, um, just not too long before I ran, my 249, she had run in a race in Australia, and she had gotten it before you. Well, there was a lot, of con- a lot of controversy over this, and the international community decided that, no, this was not a legitimate race. It was, um, there was way too much controversy over it for IAAF to recognize it. But um, some people in the U.S. who were sort of, I guess, self-appointed statisticians, before this was before Walt, um, had a letter from Adrian's coach saying that, no, this, no, this is, you know, we, we signed off on this and everything. Well, um USA bought it. IAAF did not. And so based on their um, belief, they went ahead and recognized Adrian as having the record and not me. And so I was left out 
all those years. And uh, it wasn't until a fellow Australian was putting together a book on world records, not Olympians, but world records. And he contacted me and uh, he said, well, yeah, there's a lot of controversy (laughs) around Adrian's time. And I said, well, you know, she's one of your countrymen, and and you're saying there's a lot of skepticism about it. And uh, he, he says, yeah, you're right. <laughs> and he goes, but uh, I want to interview you for the book as, as a, you know, a former world record holder. And uh, so, you know, so I'm, I'm in his book on world records, and he had me, I wrote a letter to him as I was answering his questions for the book. And he ended up using my my letter about the marathon as the introduction to that whole section in his book, which was, you know, kind of legitimized my participation in my mind, you know. And it, it's never... You know, there's never been any sort of formal, oh, yeah, I she should have been there. You know, Cheryl Bridges, she really should have been in there. I think I, they kind of just started. And, and I never got a public apology or anything like that. But all of a sudden, now I think I'm in that progression in the U.S. But it's, it's sort of like um, I never, I was never recognized in in the time frame when I did it, you know, and it's like, uh, well, I'm never going to get to do it again. So it's it's sort of like the only people who really know I did it are the people that I was around back then, you know, like Jackie. Uh, Jackie's always saying to me, you know, uh, we raced in track and cross country against each other and she said when I saw you do that that inspired me to go out and do it but you know it's sort of like well Jackie knew I did it uh, Mickey knew I did it Doris knew I did it but um, I almost feel like there's a real disconnect a lot of times because it kind of jumps from Jackie all the way to Joni. Yeah, it, I think sometimes it does. I mean, I I have the marathon progression and, and the world marathon progression, um, and some of the women that are on here, you know, I I really never heard about, or and I never knew how good Jacqueline Hansen was either and how much she fought for women's running, so... I think there's definitely a big gap in the history of women's running, especially the marathon. And part of me is really excited that I'm doing this because I'm hoping it can bring a little bit more, you know, attention to the history of of women's running, especially the marathon, because it didn't really start with Catherine Switzer. Um, You know, it started more with Bobby Gibb, and and even women's running started more with, um, you know, Julia Chase, who ran the first Mm -hmm. bird race. So um, I'm hoping we can kind of, put some of these women back into the into the history of running. Well, it's interesting because in in Bobby's situation, I you know, I met Bobby finally um at the marathon one year when um 
they were they were honoring Bobby and uh, Lorraine Moeller and some other women, and I just happened to be there shooting. And, um, you know, and these were, you know, I had known um, Sarah Mae Berman. You know, Sarah Mae and her husband were the race directors for the very first cross-country nationals that I ran in Franklin Park. When You know, when I first started running when I was 16 years old, you know, and so I didn't even know, you know, that Sarah May had been a marathoner because Sarah May was just enough older than me and there was, it was so difficult to get information. I mean, you know, to even get results of a meet, you had to send a self-addressed stamp envelope and wait for them to mimeograph off copies. And then you had to wait for the mail to arrive so that you found out what the results were. Wow. I mean, I mean, our ability to communicate with each other was just so near impossible. It, I mean, it, it was discouraging, you know, because now everything's so instant. And, um, it, yeah, it was the whole... That whole time to to stay to keep your own interest up was difficult because everything was so delayed. The results, finding out what others were doing, um, and everybody was so hungry for information, and we were so few and far between. And when you would get to a meet, it was sort of like you know you didn't want to leave. I mean, it's it's very much the same as it is now. When you go to a meet, you know, all of the officials are volunteers. But they all have, not all, most of them have a connection with the sport, whether they were excellent at it or they were the water boy. It doesn't matter. They love the sport, and that's why they're there. You know, there are... There's some jerks in there, just like there is with anything. But for the most part, they love the energy and they don't want to leave because they're all there. You know, that is their, um, that's their home away from home. And, and that never leaves you. Once you get connected to this sport, you are always connected to it. It's um, it's real special that way, you know. And I think that, um, you know, you see people sitting in stands after the meet's over, just sitting there talking, and it's because it it has such a special place in their heart, and they love talking about it, they love hearing about it, they love reliving. Um, how it makes you feel, you know. And I think um, that's why it's so easy for so many of us to uh, look back and go, well, wait a minute, <clears throat> you know, um, we didn't have all of the equipment and everything, but uh, 
we had the same the same feeling, the same experiences. You know, maybe we weren't as fast and and we don't we didn't know as much as is available for people now to you know, measure um how to be better, you know, fix this, fix that. Um but it it really doesn't matter. It's it's this uh unification through experience that I think is so awesome about the sport. Yeah, it, it definitely is true. And it brings together everybody from from every every area of, you know, of the US and everybody comes from different backgrounds and um, but everybody can stand on the starting line and and do the same the same event. When uh, when I was shooting indoors at, at Reggie Lewis, uh, I used to volunteer and do um, shoot the meets for the coaches association. When they would put on on track meets for the high school kids, I would take photos and then um, give them to the coaches association to put on their website. So that they could, you know, sort of um, keep kids motivated by being able to look at themselves. And I, uh, a lot of the guys that um, work the meets that, you know, were there at the doors and um, were part of the crew right there at Reggie. And, and a lot of them you know, we're from different countries themselves. And I used to say, you know, this is really like a little UN here. I said, you've got kids that uh, have immigrated here and uh, like Quincy High School is real typical. There were, the coach there would, would tell me, he said, you can walk down those halls and you can hear like 20 different languages being spoken you know, when they are able to speak their native tongue with whoever, you know, is from that country too, you know, and they revert back to, to you know, speaking their their native language. And, uh, and I used to say to these guys working the doors, I said, you know, you guys are really in a position to watch um, humanity at its best. I said, this is like... You walk through these doors, it doesn't matter what language you speak, what ethnic group you're from, what what uh, monetary um, backing you have. It, it, it None of it matters. You walk in the, these doors, and it's all about the clock and the tape. And I said, these kids would never, so many of them would never have an opportunity to get to know each other or to find a reason to uh, communicate. But because of track and field, you know, all the barriers are broken down and there's there's friendships and, um, you know, respect that comes because they've got this level playing field of, of track and field. And it's just, it's magic. I mean, when you go to world championships, uh, Olympics is one thing. That's kind of like, oh, the Yankees are in town, let's go. Whether you know anything about the sport or not, a lot of people, you know, buy tickets and go if it's in their country. But you go to world championships, those are really the hardcore. They know your stats better than you do, people. 
you know, and they are, they, and you know, and they they don't care what country you're from. They just know that you're good at what you do, and they appreciate the good effort and they they appreciate the good battle. And you know, they're the purists. You know, those are the people that really, really understand what's going on when you know um, a, a German beats a Finn in the javelin. Whoa, that's that's like huge. <laughs> no, that's our sport. <laughs> Javelin's our our event, you know. But we respect you because you beat our fin, you know. Um, and that that's like that's like uh, purity, you know. That's that's when it's the best. The humanity's at its best then. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> I, I do like the. Exciting course of track and field and road racing, and um, and so at this point um, in 1971, you, you know you worked with Dillinger and you ran the marathon, and you continue to run cross country and make a couple more um, world cross country teams. Um, tell me about the rest of your career because um, you know have you competing at least what I could find uh, through. 76, and then you became the assistant women's director at Michigan State. So take me through kind of those those five years between the marathon world record and, and becoming a women's athletic director. Well, um, uh, a lot of things. Um, you know, it was, it was difficult to train and work. And... Um, uh, you know, I didn't, I had uh, difficulties in a marriage and um, a divorce and all of that going on. And, you know, the whole the whole time I'm still training by myself. And um, that just got, you know, as much as I loved it, um, you know, um, the difficult relationship really took a toll on my running, and um, I just didn't, I was kind of a lost soul out there, not knowing where I belonged and what I ought to be doing, and um, that whole thing about, you know, when should you retire was a tough one. Um, You know, the 10K finally took hold. Uh, I ran in the first one. I don't know if you knew this. At Drake. Ah. Drake was the first time that a um that the women's ten K was on the on the um on the schedule. And they did it so early in the morning it was before anybody had arrived. <laughs> and I can remember the men, the men pole vaulters were arriving as we were finishing our race, and they're like, "What's going on here?" <laughs> and it was pretty crazy. Um, Peg Nepple and um, oh shoot, I can't remember her name. Um, uh, Cook, Carol Cook. They were teammates at Iowa State, and. Um, they and I, and I don't remember how many more. Maybe, uh, maybe the rest of the <laughs> Iowa State 
um, distance crew, but we ran the first 10K on the track there. And then the second 10K was actually at <clears throat> in uh, Eugene. It was, there was a twilight meet. The men's marathon trial started on the track and then it went out on a course and came back and ended on the track. And that was the second 10K. <laughs> and all three of us were under the first time that we ran. I mean, we all improved enough. But, you know, I mean, that was that was pretty much it. And then... Um, Let's see. I was living in Minnesota, so that meant it was uh, 70, what was that, 76. Um, And I had driven out in my Volkswagen bug three days. I drove, got there, recovered for one day, and then ran. I don't even know what that's like, but it sucks. (laughs) My legs were so stiff. It was like, that was one of the dumbest things I did. (laughs) But, but yeah, and then, you know, I I was trying to make a living and and do all of this and train on my own, and it was just, it was hard. It was just hard. Um, And there wasn't, you know that that part about not having anybody to train with was just uh, was just really hard. Um, and then I think um, when I got to Boulder, um, I ended up. It was a strange series of events. I went to there was a national convention. Um, I'm trying to remember if it was the AIAW convention, and that was the convention we decided we were probably going to have to join NCAAs. And I went there looking for a job, basically. I didn't want to do my Ph.D. I just, um, I really didn't want to. And so I went to this convention, met up with Nell Jackson, who was pretty high up in the AAU organization, and um, she had actually been at the University of Illinois in Champaign-Urbana when I was in high school and first started running. So I had known her since 66. So here we are 10 years later, and I saw her at the convention, and she had mentioned to me that it was time now for Title IX to be um, all the schools had to comply. And there was going to be some shift at Michigan State where she was. She was a head track coach. And um, so I, I applied and ended up that spring of... Spring of 77, ended up 
getting hired because because out of compliance, Michigan State had to have a women's athletic director, and that was going to be now. She made me her assistant women's athletic director. She stepped down as head track coach, made me head track coach, and she was the assistant track coach. I walked into a deal where I had a team that won the Big Tens that spring. I mean, it was not as a result of my coaching. It was Nell's coaching, but I got to watch. So I spent a year. uh, I spent uh, a year and a summer there, and uh, it was not for me. Um, I was not an administrator. I thought I had grown up in the world of track and field where your time spoke for yourself. And I did not fit into the world of politics. And I loved coaching, though. And some of the girls that I coached, um, <clears throat> you know, I heard from later on. But, um, uh, yeah, I resigned and went off and did other things. Um, I loved I loved Michigan State. I loved coaching. But as an administrator, um, the men's program they hated us. You know, we were we were taking away from them in their minds. And it took a long a long time for a lot of men to embrace Title IX. And I always say it wasn't until those men had daughters who became athletes before they changed their mind about Title IX. That's probably definitely true. I mean, I can't imagine living through that time when Title IX first came out and, you know, the things that you guys had to do (laughs) to deal with with them you know, how angry they were, and I think now there's still some resentment uh, because of, you know, cutting programs and things like that. Um, yeah. That they do. I'm, I'm sure some resentment still still lingers in the co- collegiate season or collegiate um, area for sure. Um, and so at that time, um, after you, you know, left Michigan State, um, is this during the time that you um, opened some stores with, with Frank Shorter, some running stores? Yeah, um, I left Michigan State at that time. Um, I got, I was, um, I moved there with Steve Flanagan was going to be opening stores. Well, we opened stores back in, let me back up a second here. Okay. Um, uh, Before the Olympic trials, um, Hello? Frank had, I'm just trying to think. Frank was over in, um, is this when it was in Germany? I'm trying to remember where it was, but anyway, a bunch of us runners were house sitting 
in seven in the summer of seventy six. There were a bunch of us house sitting at Frank's. And um I had met Steve on a a world cross country team. And um when I got divorced and um resigned my position, I was at Oklahoma State supposedly supposed to be their women's athletic director, but um, Larry ended up getting a job as a visiting professor, and um, we couldn't both be there. So I resigned, and Steve said, well, come on up to Boulder because there's a bunch of runners here, and, um, you know, we're going to open this store, and you can work at the store. So I thought, okay. So I packed up everything, moved to Boulder, and um, it wasn't a store yet. <laughs> but all of the shoes were arriving at Frank and Louise Shorter's house, and there were all these people uh, who were house-sitting. Um, Charlie Vigil, uh, uh John Gregorio, John and Nancy Gregorio. Um, oh, my gosh, who else was there? Um a bunch of other runners were there, and it was just this, there were runners all over the house, and everybody was, you know, in sleeping bags all over, you know, and it was just, it was a running mix. It was wonderful. Um, I was the only girl besides Nancy, but, um, I mean, we'd roll out in the morning and we'd hit the trail. We'd hit the Mesa Trail right there by Frank and Louise's house. And then those guys would go do their afternoon workout. And, and it was just, it was like, oh, my gosh, this is really great training with people, you know. And I just, I, I was just thrilled, just thrilled. But, uh, and that's when, you know, the running store thing started happening and we started opening this running store and um and that's when in 77 in the spring of 77 I had gone to this convention met now and I was going to be hired in Michigan and the guys thought well let's open a store in Michigan you know we so we we did. We opened. I mean, things worked really quickly. We opened a store right there, right off campus, and we employed the kids that were I was coaching. You know, what better than to have kids who use the equipment? And so Steve and I got married, and then when I left that position, it was like, okay, now what are we going to do? So we went back to Colorado, and... um I was going to apply for this other coaching job out in um, uh, at, out in California, but it was Santa Barbara, which I would have loved. But they had this deal where they only hired coaches for three years at a time, and then they replaced you. And I thought, well, that's that's not going to work. I mean, I don't want to go recruiting and then have to leave my kids. So, um, so that's when we opened the store in Durango, and then we moved back up to Boulder, and then I became, because none of the guys were really good at, you know, inventory control. They just wanted, you know, they just wanted to try on all the shoes. <laughs> so 
I was I was more of a numbers person, and so I became the buyer because they weren't paying attention to the inventory. And I'd say, no, we've got enough 14s in this store. Ship them over to the other store. Don't buy more. You know, we just – and so, you know, I became the buyer. And then, and uh, you know, Steve and I were part – were investors. We were part owners. And – so that part of my life started taking off, and then um, you know, then we we um, we were married for what five years, four years, and then um, we had Shalane, and then we had Maggie, and uh, you know, and then after that, it was I was just a recreational jogger, but um, but then I had health issues that were. Um, could have been life ending and um and that kind of changed my whole outlook on everything uh, and that was the ventricular tachycardia um that kind of had me disappear <laughs> um, the article i read said that it they jokingly said you set a world record of having um you know the highest heart rate for the longest period of time. You know, they were you know, kind of joking about that in the article, but it definitely turned out to be something incredibly serious. That um, you know, the yeah, yeah. I was I was in DTAC um, when I was I was in DTAC for a couple hours, and the EMTs that came to revive me to take me to the hospital. I I had um, I was in fibrillation. I was gray when they found me, and they started CPR on me, and they got me into the ambulance, and um, we're going to do, um, you know, I, I always call them the jumper tables, you know, cardioversion, and, uh, but they waited till they got me to the hospital, and they just pretty much just cut my my clothes off of me and used the cardioversion to get me back into rhythm. And um, then, you know, I stayed in the hospital, but I slept for like a day or two, I guess. And the EMTs that, you know, picked me up and brought me there came to see me in the hospital. And they are the ones that, you know, the doctors tell you so much, but it was the EMTs that really gave me the hardcore. They said, you know, we don't even know why you're here. You know, you were at 275 when we found you, and you shouldn't be alive. You just shouldn't. You know, um, they attributed me to being in good shape um, for that, and I kind of, it took me the next seven and a half years to kind of come to a different conclusion. And that conclusion was that um, it wasn't my time yet, that there was more to what my contribution was supposed to be. And so... um, You know, I got I got to stick around for a little while longer, but um, you know, I went through like a lot of people that go through the why me 
it was sort of like, for me, it was, what am I supposed to do with this? Because when I came out seven and a half years later, after being on meds that kept my rhythm so that I wouldn't die, um, after seven and a half years, you know, my body really hadn't changed and I really wasn't exercising. And I didn't understand what that was all about. It was almost like I'd been on hold in this holding pattern. And when I got out on the other side of being on these meds, it was sort of like my body was given back to me. It was sort of like, don't don't worry about the body. You know, you're going to get your body back. We just needed to wake you up as to what your contribution is supposed to be. And the only way to get your attention was to stop you dead in your tracks. And um, I think I went through a lot of years in denial. But um, the hardest thing was that when that happened, I was separated from Steve. And he had taken the girls to Massachusetts. I was still in Colorado. I was looking for a job. We hadn't quite decided what was going to happen with our lives, but we knew that we weren't getting along very well. And uh, I found out while I was in the hospital that he had applied for the divorce. And when I found that out, I found out that because they had been with him since September, and this was December when this happened, if it had gone one more month, he could have gotten full custody, Mm -hmm. and he wouldn't have had to share custody, custody with me. So I'm in the hospital, I find this out, and I file for divorce from my hospital bed. And um, the other thing is nobody knew I was in the hospital with the BPAC. Because I was there all by myself in Colorado, and um, he had, I found this out later, he he had detectives kind of trying to find out you know, who I was seeing. I wasn't seeing anybody. I just, um, I couldn't be with them any longer. And so it sort of turned into, um, um, I had to, I was in the hospital for two weeks, and I had to deal with the fact that I had nearly died. And here... I didn't have my girls with me anymore. Um, I had to sell our house. I had, <laughs> when you look at the major situations, uh, major stresses in your life, I had something like five of the seven. <laughs> and, my, and this is before, you got to understand, this is before doctors acknowledged that stress could actually affect your health. And But I, my doctor came and he said, well, he said, uh, "You've got you've got five of the 
seven biggest stressors going on in your life, we suggest you go on vacation. <laughs> go Where am I going to go on vacation? It was just a really, really, really hard time in my life. And um, it, it, it stayed that way for years. <laughs> and uh, finally, you know, after being on meds that, were just as debilitating as they were life-saving, um, I was able to get off of them. And at 47 and a half, I can remember, you know, I I went through this new procedure called radiofrequency ablation where they microwaved the cell that was breaking, breaking the... Um, um, the message, the impulse in the heart it, it kept um, breaking the message that says, "Okay, you can you can slow down now. You don't have to keep going so fast." And um, um, what I learned during that seven and a half years was, you know, my identity, my only identity that I gave to myself was me as a runner, and that was totally taken away from me. I was no longer a runner. It was like, who am I? You know, what What do I do now? I don't know if I know how to do anything else. Um, because I always felt those other jobs came to me only because I was a runner. And I had to, it wasn't until towards the end of that seven and a half years that I thought, you know what, um, what else am I good at? Who, who am I beyond a runner? And then once I was, I didn't have to be on those heart meds anymore and I went through that radio frequency ablation and at 47 and a half I came out the other end with the body that looked like it had been running all along and it's like, okay, who am I? What am I supposed to do with my life? You know, I have my life back, I have my body back, but, you know, obviously I'm here for another reason. And so then my journey started, you know, for that next 20 years, you know, who am I, what am I supposed to be doing kind of thing. And brings me to this where I'm, I'm, at, I'm at now where I do the photography, but um, I do it for others. Wow. It's definitely a, a journey you had, and I think the running probably gave you the strength both physically and mentally, to get through um, yeah. some of the things that you did. And I have to uh, – I wanted to ask you about um, part of this time because I saw that you have um, the patent for – or a utility patent for, for women's sports bras. And I was going to ask you when when you came up with that and, and how that happened because um, actually you weren't the only – um, there's a couple other women that said, oh, you need to talk to Cheryl. She's the one that started coming up with women's sports bras, and she had all these crazy ideas. And, um, but I was going to ask you about, uh, you know, the kind of equipment and, and how you came up with the idea for women's sports bras. Well, you know, when we started running, you know, uh, if, you had, if you had anything, a seat cup and beyond, you wore an underwear ballet bra. And... First-hand, first-hand knowledge, since I was a little chunk trying to, 
you know, lose some weight. <clears throat> I learned firsthand that if you wear an underwire and you have breasts, the breasts are going to move all over the place, and they're going to move the underwire, and it's going to create a little scab right between your your breasts on your chest wall. Um, <clears throat> but those were the only kind of bras that were available pretty much. There were some without without underwires, but, you know, pretty much all bras sucked at that point, and nothing was made for activity. Then Hinda and Lisa got together, and they did the jog bra, you know, that was made out of the two jog straps and that whole story. The problem was they did not help if you had breasts. If you were an A and maybe a firm B, they worked. But there was too much elastic to it. When I got pregnant, I exploded. And I went from a runner's chest, I went right back up to a C and then eventually up to a B. And I had grown up. As a little kid, I learned how to sew. So I started experimenting with lots of things and came up with a pretty darn good design in my mind with Shalane. But by the time Maggie came around in 83, I thought, I looked around and see here I was a buyer by then. I knew all the bras that were out there. I went to the conventions. I, you know, I was the buyer for a four-store chain. I knew everything that was out there for a runner, and there were no bras if you had breasts. So I thought, well, you can sit around and complain or you can do something about it. So I got busy and came up with some designs and um, applied for a patent and got a utility patent and then licensed it to a company who did leotards. And the reason I said that is because I knew they would know how to deal with stretch fabric. Mm. They incorporated that into their line. It was called Gilbert Gear. And they were a leotard company that they were smart. They did all the bras to match their leotard line. And I got to tell you, it, it is such a charge to see your idea come to fruition and be on sale in a store. I can't even tell you what a blast that was. It it, it was just like, that's mine. That's my idea. It's been created into a product that can help women. And the reason I knew it was good is um, back then, the PM Magazine hostess up in Chicago was seen at a disco. She put rhinestones on it and wore it with a, a pair of tights. And it was like, oh, my gosh, this is just too cool. And then L.A. Gear Shoe Company was brand new. They did a poster with their shoes, but they wore the Gilbert Gear bra in their poster that they advertised. They didn't. You know, they didn't just, you know, advertise that. But here my bra was in the hottest shoe going at the time. It was on the model in her in her workout gear with her L.A. gear shoes. So um, then we ran into problems where people who uh, I had licensed it to decided they didn't want to continue paying my license fee, which was really pretty minimal. 
and uh, ran into problems with that. But in the meantime, um, the bra I really wanted to get out there was for the CD double D's. Um, the bra that that actually made it to market was still for the AB cups, and it was a slight, you know, it went over the top of your head. It was um, <clears throat> just a, a U-shaped neckline, front and back, very similar in size so that, um, but it, it was out of shiny fabric that had very little stretch to it, so consequently it got it got the patent because it, it held the breasts firm. Um, but I still have another one for CD Double D that I just I just talked through through her coach. I just talked with Chanel Price to see whether or not she would be willing to um, talk with me about that because that patent uh, it's a seventeen year patent. It just uh, expired two years ago, and I have not done anything with it. But nobody's done it, anything like it still. So I'm thinking I might go back into the bra business again. Because of people like because of people like Chanel who who you know, she needs a good sports bra. And I've got a picture of her running this weekend at Raleigh Relays and she's got three tops on. And I, over the years, I've watched, you know, throwers. Throwers need um, good sports bra, too, because their center of gravity is affected if they're spinning. So, um, yeah, the, the reason I got into the bra design business is because I needed something. Because here I was nursing, I was a D, and I couldn't find anything to hold me so that I could get back in shape. Plus, I... I I nursed the first six months with Shalane, and I had a really hard time, um, you know, with bras. And um, same thing with Maggie. I nursed with her, so um, and no one had come up with anything in those three years. And so, you know, it's if you know if you can if you can't be the only one who wants it. If you if you want it, there's got to be somebody else. That's the same thing with the photos. I I thought I can't be the only one who doesn't have photos of themselves competing, or have a kid competing, and you can't get to the meet, and you want to see what your kid did. So, you know, with all of the musicians starting to put their own music out on the internet without having an agent, I'm thinking, yeah straight to the consumer. Yeah, that's how I want to do. I want to do my my pictures and my bras and everything too. So, and I'm just I don't know. I guess it's because I started running because I wanted to lose weight, and I was motivated to do that. And once the weight was off, my gosh, there was a runner inside. And then it was, well, gosh, this is, you know, how much better can I get? That same drive drives me to be a better photographer, to come up with a, a better bra. And now that I've had knee surgery, I'm I'm kind of hell-bent on, on um, 
getting the information out to young girls about the exercises they need to be doing to prevent injuries. So it's sort of like you let me loose on something and, <laughs> you know, I I kind of, you know, it's that whole thing. You know, I can't be the only one. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. I mean, I, and especially with the increase in soccer um, for the girls, they really need to be doing a lot of the knee exercises. And, you know, because they need to be strengthened for not only um, soccer, but for what they do track. We, in our, in our school alone, the high school here, we've had soccer players who have blown out their knee multiple times. Uh, yeah. They do it year-round. They do it year-round. They do nothing else. And it's just yeah. really sad. So sad. My physical therapist, you know, I had knee surgery uh, nine weeks ago. I had my ACL replaced because I blew it out. <clears throat> and uh, my meniscus was in pretty bad shape, and so they did some stitching there. But, um, you know, I asked questions as I'm getting my physical therapy, and I asked my Amy, I said, you know, tell me why all these girls are, I mean, I don't remember all these injuries growing up. And she goes, <clears throat> she said, okay, you really want to hear? And I go, yeah. She said, you know, the front of girls, the front side is strong. The back side's weak, and that's where a lot of it comes from. Mm-hmm. And then they get way too specific on their on their routine because, you know, the coaches don't want them uh, varying their routine and yada, yada. And I said, and so my rehab has been to get my hamstrings strong. And that's probably, you know, even though I was never injured as an athlete, I... It's not that my muscular ability has shifted. So I was always weak on the backside, and that's probably why I tore my ACL in October. I just had pushed it far enough. I, I just All I did was step off a hay bale, but I did it at such an angle that I never had approached before and those those hamstrings have not gotten any stronger you know the quads sure have you know my front side's strong um lifting a camera and and doing everything that i do and but i've never taken care of the backside never so you know i'm looking back going dang you know if i had better hamstrings what, what kind of better runner could i have been um, you know, I never got injured, but I sure as heck always was going to the chiropractor to get straightened out. And he would, my pelvis was tilted and rotated, and he always said it's because I have an imbalance between my quads and my hamstrings. But I never knew what exercises to do to get my hamstrings stronger to keep me in alignment. So I'm going back through all of this information going, oh, man. You know, if I had known this, you know, so now I'm going, we know it. We know it, and we know that most girls, like 99% of them, have weak backside. When they land from a jump, they land with their knees bent going inwards. All of that kind of stress creates more of knee, knee joint problems for girls. And I'm thinking, dang, you know, let's... Um, you know, I grew up at a time when 
Bob and Jean Anderson were putting together their book, you know, on stretching. In fact, when I was at Michigan State, he and Jean stayed with, with Steve and I. Um, they slept in their truck, backed up to our apartment and married student housing on campus, and then he went over and taught stretching to the football team. And, you know, and I'm thinking how he started, something that he knew would help people, and he did it grassroots. And now I'm looking at, darn, you know, now we can maybe put together an ebook that can be downloaded when, when a, a kid and then do a cross-reference on it on, uh, you know, um, you know, what, is, what are your injury potentials? Where are you feeling uh, sore? Um, you know, where could you be weak? What, what muscles could be strengthened to help you here? And do the, all this cross-reference so that, you know, a coach can download an e-book and, and just get it right there and help the athlete and say, I think maybe you need to try this exercise. It's not going to hurt you. If anything, it's going to help you, and, and you'll know you know, fairly quickly, if you do that a couple times, you'll know whether or not it's helping you out. And so I'm just thinking, man, I'm just embracing all of this technology on how quickly it helps get the information to the people who need it. It just sometimes needs to be made um, more accessible. It's all out there. It's just not accessible. It's not user-friendly. And so I'm thinking, well, shoot, you know, between technology and and all of the coaches and connections I've made over my years of being in sports, you know, maybe maybe that's where I need to um, spend some of my my energy too. You know, I mean, you start thinking about I'll, I'll never work for somebody again. I I have too much fun doing my own thing, getting to think on my own. Um, so, yeah, who knows? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. I love, I love that you're, you're creative and you go out there and you get things done. And, um, you know, you were definitely one of the first pioneers, um, in a lot of ways. Um, what was your, in your career, what was your most memorable race that you ran? My most memorable. <laughs> the one that sticks out the most. <clears throat> well, I'd say it probably would have to be um, that world record marathon just because um, it was it was breaking ground. It was it was doing something just because I wanted to do it. <laughs> there was really it was just. Me trying to prove I could do it. I mean, I think those are always the ones that are the most memorable. When when you can prove to yourself, when um, it's it's always about you fighting you and your your head and your fitness and and finding a place. To, I mean, that's all that was. It was finding some place to test myself on my terms and. And I think that's why it was memorable because I finally had found something that I was good at. And I had to go out and find it. You know, it was not something I got stuck in, you know, uh, thinking, you know, I'm not good at this or, or whatever. It was something that was totally driven by me. And so I think that's what makes it 
probably most memorable. I I loved my cross country races, and in those, some of those were certainly memorable. Um, I don't know when I tried a fifty miler <laughs> one week oh, after I, I quit nursing. <laughs> Uh, I still had water retention going for me. You know, the hormones had not had not cut off yet, and so I had this great water retention. But uh, my groin was really sore, you know, from childbirth and all that. But I, it, it probably was that marathon. You know, even though I I want to be remembered for being a track person and a cross country person. Um, the marathon was something that was sort of my idea. Um, I only was hitting 60 miles a week, and I was doing track work. And I knew when I ran that 249 that, man, that's only the tip of the iceberg. You know, because if I could do that off of, I was training for two miles. Or three miles. Two and a half miles. But if I could do that off of that kind of training, I knew, I knew that, you know, a lot of women were going to go a lot faster. Yeah. Wow. That's, and during this time, did you know that you were creating history and knocking down barriers? Did it, did it ever cross your mind? No. Uh-uh. No, because we, we were strictly driven by what what motivated it? I mean, are, I mean, no, you were just doing, you were just, you had an inner drive, like you all do, like we all do. You know, we had an inner drive, and we just knew we wanted to do it. I mean, we didn't think about the history-making part. We just were like, well, yeah, I want to do that. Of course I want to do it. You know, it's the next step, isn't it? Um, you try one thing and you succeed, it's like, okay, conquered that, now what? You know, you get fit and you and all you want to do is find a race. It's like, I'm fit now. I need to find something to race now because I'm in such awesome shape. And that's all it was, was just pushing the envelope on, I'm in good shape, find me a race. You know, find me something to do. Find me something different. It didn't matter. You know, it's it's the challenge of it. And a lot of people think, oh, you know, you're so competitive. You're, you're competitive with yourself. You know, I mean, the other people that are competing point out to you, you know, how good it can be, how good, you know, they they can help push you or pull you. But... Um, it's all about challenging yourself. Some people challenge themselves in different ways, you know. Um, no, I guess in our time, we we didn't really think of it that way because we were, um, you got to remember, <laughs> society was saying you were supposed to be married and having babies, <laughs> you know. It was, you know, you didn't want to push it too hard because somebody might make you actually go and do that. <laughs> so, you know, uh, that whole thing about Title Nine. I, I was teaching, I can remember when it passed, I was teaching in a um, community out in California, and um, 
Well, this is Cesar Chavez days. Um, you know, the, the migrant farm workers were, were fighting for equal pay and, um, you know, the, um, when I when I applied for the job out there, I was from Indiana, like you, and, and there was not a whole lot of diversity back in the 50s and 60s. And I go out to California, and they go, do you have any prejudice against Chicanos? And I said, I don't even know what a Chicano is. You know, I don't think I do, you know. Um, and now it's it's sort of a derogatory term, I guess. But, you know, it was... It was a farm worker. It was a Mexican farm worker. And, and no, why would I have prejudice against someone who's, you know, going to work the fields and, and pick the, the food and do all of this? And I had, uh, <clears throat> in in their culture, you know, the, the girls were would always develop before the boys in the seventh grade. And so I had... I had Mexican girls that just could not wait to be allowed to play flag football so they could deck some little boys. <laughs> that in their society at home, you know, women were supposed to be subservient. But, man, they saw flag football, and that they knew they wanted to play flag football. <laughs> and it was, it was great because I watched these girls before they, before we can even put a name to it, before Title IX, they saw a way to be liberated through sports. And it was just, it was the purity of it, you know. It was just, I don't know, it was really, it was really something to watch these, these young girls discover their power. And... Um... During this time, you know, you know, you've, I mean, you kind of had um, a great career. And did you did you consider competing in masters after you kind of retired from running? Yeah, but I want to be a hammer thrower. Oh. <laughs> now I have to wait for my knee to heal. <laughs> <laughs> I want to do something different. I want, yeah, I want to compete, but I want to, yeah. But it it won't be it won't be as a runner, it won't be as a runner. Um, my running now is is saved for my quiet time in the woods. Okay. Uh, my challenge with with the hills, um, you know, you know one of you, you asked about my my best race. Probably one of my my nicest experiences was. The first time I was ever out in um, in Oregon, and I can't remember what woods we whether we were up in the Seattle area or in Oregon, but um, we went for a run in the ferns. Some trail we were on, the ferns were waist high, and I was not in shape to go for a twenty miler. But I went for a twenty miler. It was just so incredibly awesome. And to this day, you know, I I could not have run for, you know, a year. But I get in the woods, and I can jog around for an hour, <laughs> you know. I mean, it just gives you a different kind of 
energy. You know, um, so yeah, if if I ever were to compete again, it would probably be in something where I'm going to have to learn how to do it. It won't be in something that I've I've done for a long time. It's going to be an event that I have been shooting and I have uh, a lot of respect for, and I think it looks like ballet because it's such it's such muscle control and body control. And I will want to learn how to do that. And that would be if I ever make it to the Masters competition. That that's what it's going to be in something I can throw. <laughs> but now you're you're doing the pretty sporty, and you um, you in 2009 you got an award for um, track and field writers of America. And you, you yeah. Inducted, you, you've been inducted into a couple Hall of Fame. The Indiana State University Hall of Fame, the RRCA <laughs> Hall of Fame, and the Indiana um, Athletic uh, Track Cross Country Coaches Hall of Fame, which um, I am honored to share that with you, to be in that <laughs> with you. That's that's pretty cool. Yeah. Um, uh, and yeah. Um, is there anything else that you'd like to add that I, that I didn't cover or that you want to mention? Um, I know we probably shouldn't end it without saying that, you know, you're Shalane Flanagan's mom, the Olympic bronze medalist, um, and I know that was definitely a proud moment for you and, and the whole family, but is there anything else that you'd like to talk about or add? I think <clears throat> the only thing that maybe I'd like to add is, um, um, hold on a second here. <laughs> um I think it's sad that um, the non-running community uh-huh. really, yeah, I'm just thinking, okay. I, can you still hear me? Uh, yep, um, you cut out for a little bit, but you're back. Okay. Uh, I was just going to say the non-running community, I think it's sad that they, uh, when they observe our best runners and throwers and jumpers that they they don't really understand how good they are um, because in order to be good enough to be in the Olympics or to hold those records they have to be so clean and so perfect that they make it look so easy when if you've ever tried it, it's so hard and that I only wish people could come close to the appreciation that those of us who have tried it have for those that have achieved in track and field. Um, I just wish they had... um, more recognition for their efforts because not only physically is it difficult, but mentally it's difficult. And um, the longevity to keep doing it when it's really only every four years that people sort of jump on board. And I think that's sad. I I wish there were a way to make it different. And... Um, you know, um, 
if I ever get to the point where I'm able to, you know, afford houses for runners where there's a, a house where you can go and um, have your laundry taken care of and the refrigerator filled with all the good stuff you should be eating and all you had to think about was training, um, I would love to plunk down a few of those across the country. <laughs> You know, and and just because I don't I don't think people really get how difficult it is for the sports athletes, uh, how how difficult it is for them to practice what they're good at, and um, yeah, I just wish there was a way to to uh, um, connect people with that effort so that there was more appreciation. Um, you know, my generation got to do it for the love of it. We did it before there was money. Um, we were we were in ways, in some ways, we were fortunate because there weren't pressures on us. Um, once you actually make it to a certain level, all of a sudden, uh, the pressures that are put on you know the the very very popular sports in the U.S. are are then transferred to you know our track and field kids, and I feel like uh, I feel like if you're going to put that kind of pressure on them, then you need to support them at other times too. So there needs to be a continuum of that. Um, so I and I, I don't know what the answer is, but I that's that's my wish is that there there were more uh, recognition and appreciation from the from the general population. I definitely agree with that, um, and I hope eventually down the road we can get something you know better for the athletes training in track and field and get support you know all four years, not just one. Um, yeah, I love that. Idea. Yeah. Um, yeah. So Cheryl, this has been um, a really great interview, and I've I've loved listening to you and um, you know the the passion you have about track and field and, and the ways that you're still giving back. I I think that's amazing. So um, I want to thank you for uh, for your time and and definitely uh, giving back to the sport in this way as well. Well, I'm uh, I'm really happy that um, you know. And whether this was a volunteer position that you assumed <laughs> to do all of these interviews, but um, I thank you for doing it. And um, it's nice to not be forgotten. And there are a lot of people that um, you know will never know had a had a part in all of this. But uh, as I always tell the athletes, there's somewhere in the gene pool if you dig back far enough that um, you're tapping into that gene pool. So <laughs> Definitely. Somewhere along the line, somewhere along the lines, look look long and hard because it's not always who you think. Uh, there's a, I'm trying to remember um, his name. He was a, a jumper at Ball State, and then he transferred and went to UNC. But he's back at Ball State, and I can't – gosh. Anyway, I can remember asking him – he had his parents and his grandparents there when he competed indoors in uh, Arkansas. And I asked him, I said, okay, 
who in your family is the high jumper? And everybody looked around. His grandmother said it was me. He said, when I when I was a kid and I would run around on the farm, I was the one always jumping, jumping the fences. And nobody in their family knew that until she shared it. And I said, isn't this great? You know, and uh, so you, you never know. You never know in the gene pool who who it is, how far back, but it's there someplace. That is, yeah. that is actually a good idea to ask and look around. That's pretty cool. Yeah. 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 Well, Cheryl, this is this has been great, and I will I will keep you up to date on the the progress of the project, and and uh, yeah, we'll keep in touch. And thank you so much. Yep. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Have a good night. You too. <laughs> Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.